You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. It is my privilege and joy to be able to open God's Word for us this morning. If you would take your Bibles, please, if you have them with you or however you access, you need to swipe over, open the app, whatever, uh, find Hebrews chapter 9 and just kind of hold that for a moment. We'll be reading from there in a few moments, a few minutes. This morning, there's really just one basic truth that the Lord wants to impress upon our hearts. And it is this. We've sung about it already this morning, and now we're going to read it fully in God's Word. And it is this truth. In Christ's sacrifice, our redemption was fully accomplished. In Christ's sacrifice, our redemption was fully accomplished. This morning, we're going to be encouraged um, to examine ourselves, to see how fully we are trusting and how fully we are resting in the sin-atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So let's explore this. A few years ago, I received in the mail an official document from the Honda Financial Services. Uh, I had got a loan through Honda Financial Services in order to buy a car. This document that came in the mail was one of these documents you love to receive. This document, this letter told me that my loan with them had been paid in full. It's great when you get those kinds of letters. This meant that the money I had borrowed from them in order to purchase the car, I had completely paid it back. I no longer had to send in a monthly payment. You know, the Bible tells us that we all have a debt greater than any financial debt. It is a sin debt. Romans 3 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible further tells us that we are sinners both by choice and by nature. It is our inclination as well as our decision that we sin. We sin in our defiance of God. We sin in our defiance of His laws. We sin in our defiance of His ways and of His will. And we do that both in our actions and in our attitude. And our sin, this defiance of God, in that sin we have incurred a debt with God. And that debt, Scripture tells us, is so huge that we could pay for it for all eternity and never really cover it. Sin is so bad... And it is so destructive, and it is so heinous, and the debt it incurs before God is so immense, the Bible says that we, outside of Christ, 
we actually deserve the judgment and wrath of God. Ephesians 5 tells us, let no one deceive you with empty works, for because of these things, and in the verses before that he had just described these various sinful acts, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In John chapter 3, one of the great verses, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. A little bit later in that same chapter, we read this in verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's sobering. When we lie, or cheat, or steal, or lust, when we are greedy, or envious, or jealous, or unloving, or hateful, or prideful. We are committing treason and betrayal of the highest order. Now, we don't like to think of it that way, and certainly our culture doesn't think about it. They think of these things as mishaps. But these things are in defiance. They are in rebellion against God. The Bible says that we are guilty of sin against God. And the judgment of God on our sin is the debt we owe. The debt on sin can only be paid with the life that is forfeited. Family and friends, this is a massive debt. And it, is, and it has a deadly and torturous payment plan. But the Bible doesn't just describe what is really difficult to hear. It really is bad news in many ways. The Bible also gives the good news. It tells us the good part of this. It tells us that whoever believes in the Son has life. The Bible says that because God loved us, he sent His Son to pay the debt for our sin. Romans 5, verse 8, But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we cleaned ourselves up. He didn't wait till we were trying better. While we were still in our sin, that's when He died for us. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We find this very important strategic verse in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made us alive together with Him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He has forgiven us through Christ. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. He did this by nailing it to the cross. You know, there's an old chorus we used to sing in the church I grew up in, 
He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. I grew up singing that. And I never fully realized the importance of that as a younger child. This is the message that propelled Christianity from its seemingly meager beginnings of 12 disciples to actually turning the world upside down. Now I want you to hold on to this because we're going to weave this into what we're about to read in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we need to look at just how Jesus Christ paid our debt. And we turn to the book of Hebrews to help us. Now, Hebrews is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is my favorite because of the theme that runs through it that's repeated again and again. And this is the theme of Hebrews. Christ is superior. He is superior. The book of Hebrews offers a compelling and magnificent picture of who Jesus Christ is. We find in Hebrews that Jesus is superior to angels. He is superior to Melchizedek, the king in the Old Testament. He is superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua. He's superior to Aaron. We find out in the new covenant in Christ's blood that that is superior to the old covenant in the blood of animals. We find out that Jesus is the superior high priest than all the priests that had served under the old covenant. We understand through Hebrews exactly what it is that Christianity doesn't just have roots in Judaism. It actually is, its foundation is in Judaism. In the book of Hebrews, we read, we learn how and why Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through him. So the passages we are going to read this morning are from Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10. Remember this whole thing about the debt as we go through this. And I will lead us through specific verses as I read. And again, remember, the author is demonstrating that Jesus is the superior high priest and he himself is the superior sacrifice for sin. So let's begin. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Move down to verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had, speaking of Jesus, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of the many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We move on to, verse, to Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, 
instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is God's word. These verses are telling us something that is crucial about how it is possible again to be saved to the uttermost. And that's really what what we're talking about here. These verses are saying that Christ's sacrifice of his own life was the payment for our sin. It was the payment on our sin debt because of what we had done in defiance of God. So I want you to notice something about that last passage in verse 12. We, we read this, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice. After he did that, the scripture says he sat down at the right hand of God. And it says this, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, the context of this passage is the inefficiencies and inadequacies of the Old Testament temple sacrifices and priestly systems. What God gave to His people that was a blessing to them, that was meant for them, that ultimately we know was meant to point them towards Christ, He's just trying to demonstrate that there were, they weren't sufficient to really take care of the sin problem. They were not able to actually cover the sin of people, and they were not meant to. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He's just illustrating, yes, there was something else going on, something else that God was doing in the Old Covenant that ultimately was trying to point them towards what He was going to do through His Son, Jesus Christ. See, these things were meant to point to Christ and what He would do when He offered up His life to pay for our sin. He paid for our sin. He actually had a dual role. He was actually the great high priest, and He was also the great sacrifice. He Himself, the Scripture we read, He went into the holy place, not with the blood of of animals, He went into the holy place as the great high priest with His own blood to spill His blood for, for sin. The temple and the holy places and the animal sacrifices were all physical representations of heavenly realities, but they were, as it says, a shadow of the good things to come. Actually, these things were meant for the people to do something very specific. It was meant for for there to be a connection 
to be made. The animal sacrifices for sin help the people make the connection between their sin and death. When you sinned, something died. And those sacrifices went on continually. And you thought about it that way. Oh, if I do this, there are specific sacrifices for, for sin that was given in the Old Covenant. And, and in that, there was a connection being made that this costs something when we sin. If you sinned, death followed. Again, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. That's what he's talking about there. There was the reminder of sin in, in these death sacrifices of these animals. It's gruesome. It's bloody. It should be offensive to us because our sin is offensive. Hebrews is telling us that animal sacrifices didn't truly atone and never could. They were meant to point toward Christ and what He would do. So the writer tells us these Old Testament sacrifices had to happen often and they had to be offered by priests who were themselves sinful like the people for whom they were offering the sacrifice. Verse 11 of chapter 10, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the priests had to make purification first for their own sin, before they could offer the sacrifice on behalf of someone else. See, Hebrews is just letting us see the inadequacies of this system. That there was something superior that was coming, that all of these things were meant to point to. They were not an end to themselves. They were pointing to this greater sacrifice. You see, all of this was in contrast to Christ and what He did. Jesus was pure and perfect and sinless. And He was able to offer His life a final and complete sacrifice to pay the debt incurred by our sin. It wasn't His sin, it was our sin. He entered, verse 12, once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of His own blood. For all who trust in Christ, the debt of your sin has been paid in Christ. The debt of my sin has been paid in Christ. And Christ's payment, hear this, is all that is needed to cover our sin. And we need to push that even further. Christ's payment is all that has ever been provided to cover our sin. There is no other option for our sin to be covered and forgiveness to be offered. It is only in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place for our sin. 9 verse 26, But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Family, Friends, there is no other sacrifice in all the universe. There is no other sacrifice over all time that covers and pays for human sin. There is no other atonement except in Jesus' blood. We read again in chapter 10, verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. I love that image of Jesus sitting down. 
It's a statement of finality. It's a statement of completion. You sit down after the job is done. There's nothing more that can possibly even be done to add to what he did, sacrificing himself for us. I mean, that's what he's illustrating here in Hebrews. It's contrasting the difference from the repeated sacrifices of the priests and the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. And just like that piece of paper telling me my loan is paid in full and has been canceled, God's Word here tells us that Christ's sacrifice has paid our debt, canceling it. Please let that sink in. That all who trust in Jesus as their Savior from their sin and follow Him as their Lord, that they have had their sin canceled. We are forgiven of this incredible high treason, of this rebellion and defiance that would seek to not just dethrone God, it would seek to ungod God. It would seek to defile Him. We have been forgiven and redeemed, resulting in our eternal salvation. And that has led us into adoption into God's family. The blessings just keep coming. We were unconditionally accepted because the conditions of God's justice, His wrath, they were met in Christ's once-for-all payment. Now, I know we're going deep here, but it's important that we grab this, that we spend time making sure we, we get a hold on this. Because this is the gospel, and it is indeed good news. You know, the gospel means good news. Do you know what news is? You can watch it at, at 10 o'clock at night here. They, they come on and they tell you the events of the day. You can read it in the paper. You can read it online. News is just reporting something that happened. It's telling us that. The gospel is the news. It is the announcement of the events surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is announcing that. It is reporting that. The gospel isn't good advice. The gospel isn't good intentions. The gospel isn't good motivations. The gospel is not good effort or good living or good prospects. The gospel is good news. It is an announcement of what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus. And now out of that, there are changes that happen in our life. But the gospel is the good news. For everyone who is in Christ Jesus, for those who trust in Him as their Savior and are following Him as their Lord, listen, there is not one of our sins that is outside the atoning sacrifice of Christ. There is no sin that we can commit that is more powerful than the blood of Christ to cover. Now there are consequences, but there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. If there was even one sin, no matter how big or small, that remains unforgiven, that God holds against us, we are still dead in our sin. We are still condemned in our sin. Psalm 130 tells us if God counted our sin against us, who could stand? I mean, there's no hope if God holds our sin against us. Do we truly believe this? Christ's sacrifice was once for all. It is final. 
It is complete and it is finished. We cannot add anything to it by our obedience and we cannot take anything away from it by our disobedience because it's conditioned on Christ's work, not our work. So what degree do we understand this? And where are we pushing on this in our own lives? Once you think about this for a moment, what would you say if I told you I was going to start paying on that car loan again? Yeah, I know you're thinking you wish I owed you money, right? No, I, you'd say, no, why would you pay on something you don't owe? It's foolish. Why would I send them money when the loan is paid in full and I have the document that says this loan has been paid in full and it's been canceled? I would be trying to pay on a debt that no longer exists. Yet, too many Christians live in just this kind of way. Thinking that they have to pay more on a debt that's already been fully paid in Christ. That they can somehow add to Christ's payment for their sin by doing good things. Or they might think they have to do good things in order to have Christ's payment remain valid. The Bible is clear. Nothing we do can add to the sacrifice offered in Christ. Nothing we do can subtract from the Christ sacrifice. And we are to accept this by faith. Our only, and we've talked about this before, our only contribution to that process is the sin that incurred the debt. Not the payment on the debt. That's all Christ. And it's given to us by, by Him in grace. That's why, the gospel, that's why the gospel says that this is salvation is grace. We don't deserve it. We receive it by faith. We haven't earned it, but it is ours by faith. We are helpless before this debt. Yet Jesus stepped into our place taking our sin. And he offers us that he takes our sin and the penalty of our sin on himself. And he gives us his life in exchange. I just want to encourage us to understand the power of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. It seems over the years as I've interacted with people that too many Christians are unwilling to accept this for what it is, a full and unconditional payment for our sin. And because we don't really understand, our heart tends to shrink in the area of gratitude and humility. See, not understanding this comes at a great cost for the follower of Christ. Not understanding this comes at the cost of joy. It puts us on a treadmill of good works that will run us into the ground. It eats away at our hope and it fosters defeatism on one hand and self-righteousness on the other hand. You know, there are some indications that we can recognize maybe in ourselves, maybe in our brothers or sisters when a Christian does not truly understand or is not really fully trusting in Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Sometimes people, Christians, they think that their good works can somehow cover the bad things they do and that that will please God. We already saw that every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices and it says, which can never take away sins. Just project that forward. You try to do good, you, you put effort into doing 
it can't be about trying to cover the bad you did because your, your good works can't cover them. Not even a little bit. And just as the sacrifice of animals offered by high priests couldn't cover even one sin, our own sacrifice of good works cannot atone for even one sin. I don't know if you know this, but grace runs contrary to every aspect of human nature and human culture. Our world runs on a different principle. You get what you earn. If you make a mistake, you have to atone for it. The gospel is offensive to so many because it flies in the face of how our world and our flesh is wired. It, it, it takes control and ability away from us and it places it in the work of Christ in our behalf. You see, what grace and salvation is really saying is that if we got what we deserved, the game's over. So Christians, I think, too easily keep toiling away thinking that when they sin or when they mess up, they have to do something good to make up for it. You have to balance those scales. And this is a misunderstanding of sanctification and the place of good works in our lives as followers of Christ. And it ultimately undermines the gospel. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is unlike anything else. I don't know if you remember this movie in 1987, The Last Emperor. It came out, it actually won nine Oscars, including the best picture of that year. It is the life story of the last emperor of China. Pu Yi, I think is how you say the name. And it, it describes vividly the sheltered and unreal life that he led until the communists overthrew the government. He was catered to in ways few humans ever experienced. And, it, and it's really hard to imagine all that was done for him, this pampered life he lived. He had over a thousand eunuchs who were dedicated to his comfort, who were dedicated to his pleasure, who were dedicated to whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it. But he also had a brother, a brother who was a commoner, not royalty. And one day, his brother came to visit his emperor brother in the palace, and he was shocked by what he saw. He asked his brother, what happens if you do something wrong? Is it possible for people to see you do wrong? His reply was, if I do something wrong, my servants are punished for me. He then took a priceless vase from the Ming dynasty, and he shattered it on the floor. Every servant that was present in that room instantly gasped in horror. And a few moments later, you could hear in the background a servant being beaten to death. The gospel is stunning because it is not the servants who suffer for the transgressions of the king. It is the king who suffers for the transgressions of the servants. It is not the servants who are beaten to death for the sin and wrongs of the king, but the king who is beaten to death for the wrongs of the servants. It's all different. There is no greater love, there is no greater sacrifice than what Christ did so we could have life. And there is no other sacrifice available for sin. 
There is no other means for our sin to be covered. It is Christ or nothing else. We're either in Christ or we bear the penalty and punishment for our own sin. Everyone's sin will be judged and punished. The issue is whether that judgment is in the past on the cross or whether you're facing it in the future when you stand before God. There exists nowhere an alternative atonement for our sin. It is fully and completely in Christ. Some people who struggle with this issue also might think that if they do bad things, that God is going to get them. I had a lady in my church back in New York uh, who told me one Sunday, she said, man, God got us this week. He got us for not faithfully giving to the church. They did not give their offering one Sunday, and so that week they got a speeding ticket, and in her mind she believed that they sinned, and this was how God dealt with it. Giving to the church is important, and it's vital, but does God use that against us? She told me that God got the money one way or the other. And my response to her, just trying to help her understand, I, I said, or maybe the town of Amherst got your money because you were speeding. And I also, I asked her, I said, let's look at what you're saying here. If I understand what you're saying correctly, God in love took on our flesh by emptying himself. He endured this physical life. The creator God who sustains the whole universe by his very being. He chose to live among us and like us so that he could die an agonizing but atoning death in our place. All the while we're helpless, ungodly, sinners and enemies of God. So he could bring us to the Father. Also that we could be adopted into God's family at such a great cost to himself. He did all this while we were hostile to him, in rebellion, enemies of, the, of Christ. Only so now that he has adopted you, he can punitively punish you. Because you did not give your offering. She didn't understand the once for all payment. Does God discipline us? Absolutely. But it's done redemptively, not punitively. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You didn't do what I wanted, so now I'm just going to get back at you. That's not what God's justice is about. And it's not what his discipline is about. She, in essence, felt like God required more than the sacrifice of His Son. She, in essence, was still trying to pay on the debt that had already been paid in Christ. I mean, this mentality creeps into all of it. I mean, it, it can be subtle. Have you, has this ever happened to you? You go through, your, the, through a season where it seems like everything you turn on breaks. The blender the sump pump, the dryer, the car, the garage door. I've had a couple weeks like that in my life where everything just seems to break in the same week. And I found myself in those times wondering, I wonder what I did wrong. I had to tell myself again the gospel and call myself to embrace it and believe it and rest in it. You see, all these attitudes 
reflect a deficiency in our understanding that the debt has been paid in full. So the question for us, does God accept completely the sacrifice of His Son for our sin? Does the Bible really mean once for all? Has Christ really sat down or is He pacing around hoping that we can make up the deficiencies of His sacrifice? Is there any other possible payment that can be made that God would accept? Is Christ's sacrifice in any way lacking in power to save us, to cover our sin, and to pay for that sin totally? See, the other side of this that we don't have time to get into is what is the role of good works? Ephesians tells us about that, that we've been saved by faith through grace, that, that that's wonderful. But it also says but we have been recreated in Christ for good works. Good works don't point to the salvation. Good works come out of the salvation that we've received. Is Christ's sacrifice in any way lacking? Is the death of Christ not enough? Is His blood lacking in some way? Is there anything lacking in the salvation of our souls? If there's not, then why do we try to gain by our works what has already fully been given to us in Christ by faith? This needs to reorient our thinking and our living. It frees us. It frees us from thinking somehow what I am doing is more important than what Christ has done for me. And what I do is a result of what Christ has done for me. So think about this tomorrow. When you wake up, starting a new week, before you have done anything, good or bad, you're just waking, coming out of sleep, know this, that you are right with the Father in Christ. And that there's nothing that can happen that week that will change that relationship. That you are right before you've said anything, done anything, gone anywhere, whether you've done a good thing, whether you've sinned, you are right with the Father because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. And then go into your day thanking God that He sent Jesus who would be the once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. When we come to take communion, we embrace afresh the once-for-all sacrifice in Christ. He took our sin. He gave us His life. We open ourselves to an ever-deepening union with our Savior as we come to eat and drink this meal. And we do this as a community. Not just as individuals. We do this as a community of those who trust and follow Jesus Christ. It's an expression of our, of our unity in Christ. But this is a meal for Christ's people. This means something deeply to us of what it signifies of our relationship with God and our relationship to one another. As we move in just a few minutes to, to take communion together, if you have never confessed Jesus as Lord, if you've never believed in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you can do that in this moment. But if you're still struggling, not sure who Jesus is, this meal isn't for you at this point. It's for those who follow Christ. 
And we encourage everyone who has been baptized in Jesus, who, has made, uh, who, who confesses him as Savior and Lord, you're welcome to participate with this. But this meal is for the family of God who have been united in the sacrifice of Christ for us. Let's pray together.